All right, Matthew chapter 1 is the text we'll be looking at today for our Christmas story. But let me ask you, uh, if a very special visitor was coming today, how would you describe him or her? Just think about that. How would you describe that very special visitor? Would you describe him or her as very important or maybe very powerful or very rich? Isn't that how we typically think in those kind of those three categories pretty much take care of a lot of the people? But what does this powerful, rich, and important person look like? Well, for some people, it might look like the next picture here on the screen. The Queen of England is certain, certainly uh, important, some ways powerful, definitely rich. Uh, for other people who, uh, who live outside of England, maybe it's the President of the United States. Important, powerful. He's rich. He's not even taking his presidential salary. Uh, but for hopefully other people, it's Jesus. And it's easy to imagine he uh, or she will be different than we expect when we know some facts about a person, right? Certainly facts can, can change your, your thoughts about a person. But not uh, um, one of the problems, though, when you come to the book of Matthew is Matthew faced uh, an, an interesting issue as he's writing to the Jews of Israel. And, and so because he, that's his audience, Matthew uh, faced an, uh, an interesting way of structuring his good news, his gospel, for the Hebrew reader. See, he wanted to show that Jesus really was the expected Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. See, Jesus didn't seem to be the king that the Jews expected or pictured. They, they had different picture in their mind. He didn't set out to come and crush the Roman Empire and set himself up as Caesar. He did not act to set up the expected earthly kingdom like many Jews thought. He didn't behave as the Jews thought their king should behave. They had a different picture of their king. Theologically, then, Matthew had to answer a very critical question, which the Jewish skeptic would naturally ask. And they would ask, well, is Jesus really the Messiah? He doesn't fit my picture. So is he really the, the, the anointed one of the Old Testament? Well, let's see how Matthew reveals Jesus to be the Messiah. As he writes to his Hebrew audience, he's attempting to show that Jesus is king. So look here, Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. First of all, notice the announcement here of the conception of King Jesus. Uh, that's the first part of our text here. We see the announcement. And of course, uh, Jesus' earthly mother is, is mentioned here. So who is this blessed woman, and how is this miracle possible? It is a miracle. Well, let's just think about it, because you have Mary and Joseph here, uh, Jesus' earthly parents. They were, uh, as it says, they were in this one-year waiting period when Mary was found to be with child. But as we know, according to the Bible, they had never had sexual intercourse together with uh, and Mary herself had been faithful. It says so, <laughs> that she had been faithful. For example, in verse 20, uh, it, it says, But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the baby is not from a man baby came from the Holy Spirit. Well, now, while little is said about Joseph, one can certainly imagine how his heart must have broken. Because, uh, you know, it's natural to assume that his wife-to-be here has been unfaithful to him. He genuinely loved Mary, but yet the, the word came that she is pregnant and so his love for her was demonstrated here by his actions. What did he do? He, he chose not to create a public scandal. He didn't want to expose her condition to uh, the, the, the people where they lived. He could have. The Old Testament law stated that was kind of the normal thing to do. You go to the judges there at the city gates and you, and you would expose the sin. That was normal. Such an act could have resulted, in fact, of Mary being stoned to death. That's what the Old Testament law had stated. For example, if you look in Deuteronomy here, uh, Deuteronomy 22 says, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if Joseph was to follow the Old Testament law, that's what he would have done. But if you know the story, he didn't do that. 
And at this time, he was, he was betrothed, so he didn't want to shame this woman who was going to become his wife. So what does it mean to be betrothed? You need to understand what that's talking about there in verse 18 when it says that, his, uh, that Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed. So let me explain it this way. According to manners and customs of the Bible, uh, it says this, quote, And a spousal or betrothal is the act of engagement for marriage, a formal agreement that may take the form of a verbal promise or a written contract between two individuals. The betrothal is an ancient custom dating from biblical times when marriages were arranged by a parent, a parent or guardian. It was considered the beginning of marriage, and since it was legally binding, the pledge could not be broken except by a bill of divorce. This is the reason why Joseph is referred to as the husband of Mary in verse 19 of the first chapter of Matthew. End quote. So serious business, a serious relationship here, one that uh, should not be ignored. And what was, what was Joseph's decision? Did he go to the judges at the city gate and have Mary stoned to death? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Because verse 19 tells us he didn't want his wife, Mary, to be disgraced, to be shamed. So what did he do? He determined to break their engagement secretly and divorce her quietly, verse 19 tells us. Now, Joseph's an interesting man. Uh, what kind of a man is he? Well, if you look at uh, that verse there, it, it tells us exactly what kind of a man he is in verse 19. He's a just man, verse 19 says. A just man. And, and it, that phrase, just man... Uh, it comes from a Hebrew saying and is suggesting that he was a true believer in God, somebody who had been declared righteous by God, who was carefully obeying the Old Testament law. He was, he was a good Jew. He was a follower of God. So, how did God change Joseph's mind? Instead of stoning his wife and shaming her or whatever, how did God change his mind? Well, verse 20 tells you there that Joseph was reassured that Mary's pregnancy was not caused by a man, but was actually caused by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so God sends his angel and appears to him in the dream and tells him this good news. And then you come to verse 21, we see the central purpose of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. In other words, why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he born? I mean, after all, Jesus had been on earth before this. <laughs> in the form of the angel of Yahweh. You'll see him show up several times in your Old Testament. So why, why is he coming now at this point in, in, in history here? Well, verse 21 tells us, and it's a wonderful purpose. What a purpose! Because it says that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's the purpose. For he, that's Jesus, will save his people from their sins. That word save, by the way, uh, it, it means to cause someone to experience divine salvation. So the question needs to be asked, 
what do we need saved from? If he came to save, then what do, I, what do you and I need saved from? And of course, your answer is right there in the text. You need saved from your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is your sin. You're born in sin. That makes you a sinner. You have a sin nature, which puts you at enmity with God, the Bible says. Well, you say, well, what is sin? Well, that Greek word harmatia means to act contrary to the will and law of God. Or as 1 John puts it, sin is lawlessness. Well, then you have to ask, well, whose law are you breaking? <laughs> of course, you're breaking God's law. He's the one who makes the law. He's the lawgiver. And so, our, our sin is contrary to the will and law of God. Therefore, Romans 3 tells us nobody is good. Only Jesus is good. Everybody's guilty, and that's why you need Jesus. And that's why God sends Jesus. And what a glorious name that is, by the way, Jesus. Did you notice... He was foretold this name, Jesus, here. Jesus, by the way, is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. Did you know that? So there's a wonderful correlation. Joshua is the Hebrew. The Greek is Jesus. Same name. And you say, well, names in the Bible mean something. So what does this mean? Jesus or Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. So every time Jesus' name was mentioned, people would be thinking, oh, Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. What a name. Powerful name. But he has some titles that are also mentioned that come even from way back in the Old Testament. So look at the prophesied Emmanuel that's mentioned here. If you look at verse 22, it says that all of this, all this stuff about Jesus here, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So this son, who was conceived without the aid of a human father, is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So that little verse verse 23 there is... Uh, set aside in your Bible, indented, and looks different because it's an Old Testament quote from Isaiah 7, verse 14. Looks familiar here, doesn't it? Because it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So 700 years before Emmanuel came, or Jesus it was prophesied there would be this wonderful sign. What's the sign? Notice the sign is a virgin. It's a virgin. And it's interesting, this was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So look what the MacArthur Study Bible has to say about that interesting phrase there in verse 22, that it might be fulfilled. Well, Matthew points out, Fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies no less than a dozen times in, uh, in the book of Matthew. He quotes from the Old Testament more than 60 times, more frequently than any other New Testament writer except Paul in the book of Romans. Now why would Matthew, a disciple of Christ, 
quote the Old Testament 60 times. Well, when you're writing to Hebrews or Jews, how best to show that Jesus is their Messiah than to actually quote from the Old Testament? (laughs) The Old Testament should have been pointing them to Christ as their Messiah. They should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the point. And the ESV Study Bible says this about this glorious sign of a virgin there in verse 23. Here's what it says, quote, The Greek word parthenos, or virgin, corresponds to the Hebrew term oma, which is used in the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 regarding the virgin birth of the coming Savior. The Hebrew word alma, or virgin, or maiden, generally denotes an unmarried woman who is a virgin. So what a sign. What a sign. It's a miracle. What a miracle, because at this time in history, no one could be born by a virgin. That was impossible. There was no in vitro fertilization or you know, you know, other things going on like that during that time. So it was a glorious sign of the God-man. She truly was a virgin. What happened after Joseph's dream? Because it says the Holy Spirit comes and, and assures Joseph that this child in his wife Mary was of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Bible tells us here in verses 24 and 25 that Joseph took Mary to officially be his wife. And he's, he's an interesting man because it also says that he did not know her. Now, that's an interesting way of just saying that it was a It was a euphemism for not having sexual intercourse with his wife, which he could have, but he didn't. And so as soon as Joseph woke from his dream, the Bible says he obeyed God. He violated all custom by immediately taking Mary into his home. He didn't wait till the one-year time period had passed, which usually they would do for their betrothal period. And so Joseph was probably thinking of what was best for Mary in her condition. And what did he do? He brings her into his home. He cares for her. He provides for her. But there was no sexual relationship between them until after Jesus' birth. By the way, Mary did not stay a perpetual virgin like some scholars like to say. Just read your Bible Because Jesus had brothers and sisters. So she was not a perpetual virgin. You say, well, what is the point of this story? Why do we even have this here? You say, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm not a Jew. So does does this apply to me? Of course it does. The first four books in your New Testament are what we call the Gospels, the good news of Jesus Christ. And They are first and foremost a story about this person here, Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is always center stage. Yeah, there's there's throughout the book and those other books, there's other characters who come on and off the stage and certainly receive some focused attention. But the question that we must continually ask as, as you go through a book like Matthew is, what is this passage telling us about Jesus? He is taking center stage, certainly. He's the main character. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, as it says right at the beginning of the book. So what do we learn about Jesus 
the Messiah. What do we learn about this promised one from the Old Testament that the prophets told us about? Well, there's two things that stand out in in this particular text. Number one, possibly the most incredible miracle of history was the conception and the birth of Jesus to a virgin girl through the Holy Spirit, as verse 20 says. So here we have God becoming man. Wow. Think about that. God became man. and In fact, he just doesn't become man. Jesus becomes the God-man. So he's God and man, two natures, in this one person. And by the way, he's going to remain that for the rest of eternity. Jesus is not going to dump his humanity when you get to heaven. He's going to keep it. (laughs) That's incredible. The other thing we see is that Jesus the Messiah came to be Savior for the sins of His people. There's His mission. There's His purpose. Did He accomplish it? Absolutely. Read the end of Matthew. That's the whole point of the end of Matthew. And so many within Israel were looking for physical salvation from the hardships that they were suffering under the conquering Romans. They didn't like the Romans. They didn't like Caesar. They didn't like invading armies occupying their territory. And so they hoped for a conquering son of David. But Matthew points to Jesus as not the conquering king, but as a redemptive son of David. And in fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 130. Look at this. Psalm 130, verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in Yahweh. For for with Yahweh there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from Caesar. Right? No, that's not what it says. He's going to redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Which is kind of synonymous with sins that's mentioned in Matthew 1. So this is the fundamental purpose behind Jesus' coming. Behind His ministry. He comes and He fulfills the law. He lives the perfect life for you, which you could never do, and then dies the perfect sacrifice and rises again. So what do we learn here, in particular, about the virgin birth of Christ? Because Jesus' virgin birth was profound, had great significance uh, for you, for your Christian faith, for your life. And how is that so? Well, number one, The virgin birth points to the divine nature of Jesus. See, Jesus has to be God when He comes. He has to maintain His deity, and that makes Him totally unique. There is no one else like Him. He's God and man in one person. Praise God for that. There's a lot of implications that come out of that. I'll I'll mention a few in a moment. But number two, the virgin birth speaks of one person in whom is united full deity and full humanity. So theologians often debate this. uh, Is he 50% man and 50% God? Or is he 100% man and 100% God? He is 100% both in one person forever. 
And so it's through the virgin birth here that God chose to send His Son to become the perfect man in God. You say, well, what's the point? Okay, Is that really important to me? Well, this points to how the sacrifice of the human on the cross could actually atone for your sins. There was no other way. Jesus is enabled here to carry the sins of the world to the cross only because of His divine nature. If He was just a human being, He couldn't have done that. It required both. And so, His divine nature is capable of of sustaining His humanity. And Matthew actually shows us both of these natures, by the way, as he's showing the Jews that Jesus is king. He also shows that he's the God-man. For example, in the the first 17 verses of Matthew, he goes through that genealogy, showing that uh, his human lineage is through King David, and, and even goes back to Abraham. That shows his humanity. Uh, the, even the name Jesus also shows Jesus' humanity, and it's identifying himself with his people, verse 21 says. And in verse 25, we see Jesus has a, a human birth. Remember what verse 25 says? But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Jesus came the normal way that you came and everybody else. But we also see Jesus has has this divine relationship with the Holy Spirit, verse 23 says. So he's not just any man. He's got this unusual relationship here that we don't have. And so Jesus also has a, a divine description in verse 22 when it says that he is Emmanuel. And we know what that means because the Bible says Emmanuel means God with us. And then in verses 18 and 20, we see Jesus has divine origin through the Holy Spirit in his conception by a virgin. So Jesus is unique. He's different from anybody else. We see he is both God and man, which makes him the only person who could come and deal with your sin problem. Uh, The other interesting thing you need to know about the virgin birth is it signals, number three, it signals Jesus' true humanity without inherited sin. See, he didn't have an earthly father. Jesus did not have an earthly father like you do. So he never inherited his sin nature from uh, Father Adam like we did. But Jesus was born holy, the Bible says. You say, where does it say that? Well, look at the other, uh, in in Luke chapter 1 here, we see the other Christmas story mentions this in verse 35. The angel said to her, that's Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then, of course, uh, The book that shows us that Jesus is supreme in every way, Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So as a result, what do we see here? 
that Jesus is this, this unique person. He is human, but he, is the, he, he becomes the sinless sacrifice for your sin. But number four, the virgin birth is so significant. What do we see here? It's, it's representing the beginning stage of the redemption of humanity that's been created in the image of God, but that image, as you know, according to Genesis 3, has been distorted by the effects of sin. So, praise God for this virgin birth. Because it's Jesus comes and now provides the way of that distorted image being made whole again. Oh, praise God. So even though Jesus takes center stage in the book of Matthew, and in all the Gospels for that fact, there are some other people that are mentioned in our text. Interesting people like Joseph. What can we learn from Joseph? He's a very important person here in Matthew 1. And the first thing we can learn from Joseph is that Joseph is an example for us in the way he established his priorities. If you look at verse 25, it says that he knew her not. That's Joseph knew Mary. He didn't know Mary until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So he stays focused here on maintaining his righteous standing before the Lord by his obedience to the Old Testament law. His commitment to righteousness is certainly striking. Uh, and you say, well, how is that shown? How is that displayed? Well, it's displayed in two ways. It's, it's shown here by his sexual restraint and his hatred of what he considered infidelity and unfaithfulness. And one commentator had to say this, quote on the screen for you, that the delicate way Matthew phrases this expression, knew her not, was a common way of referring to abstaining from sexual intercourse in both Hebrew and Greek. Abstinence maintained Joseph and Mary's ritual purification during the pregnancy, as well as ensured that Jesus was virgin-born. But this is not a hint of continued celibacy after Jesus' birth. The word until most naturally means that Joseph and Mary had normal marital sexual relations after Jesus' birth from which other children were born, end quote. So here's the proof, by the way, that Mary had given birth to other children, even in the book of Matthew, Matthew 13, for example. Here's what they said of Jesus. Right? These are people who knew Jesus, knew his family. And they said this, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? There you go. Jesus had at least four brothers. They're mentioned right there. Number two. What can we learn from Joseph? Well, Joseph's obedience to the law was not legalistic. He believed it, he lived it, but it wasn't legalistic. He was concerned about not only about his own obedience, but also showing compassion for Mary and having regard for her well-being. He attempted to balance his obedience here with compassion. He's trying to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. That's a good thing. So Jesus himself condemned, by the way, 
he often condemned uh, the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, because the scribes and the Pharisees were nitpickers. They were legalistic. They, they overruled compassion and mercy, which God says is really important to him. And so look what Jesus says here in Matthew 9, verse 10. He says, it says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what it means And here he quotes Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Good balance. So Joseph's trying to carry on that that balance of loving, compassion, and mercy. But number three, Joseph's obedience to God overruled his own suspicions of Mary's unfaithfulness, as well as fear for the ruin of his own reputation. His reputation, his honor, his testimony could have been destroyed. But despite the ridicule and the slander that that he knew was coming his way, what does he do? Joseph puts his trust in God. Each of us will encounter unexpected circumstances. We're going to encounter risk as we attempt to carry out God's will in our lives? So let me ask you, friend, is your fear of man bigger than your fear of God? Who's bigger, man or God? The one whom you trust shows who is bigger. Praise God for Joseph. God was bigger than man. So he says, bring on the slander, bring on the gossip, bring on the ridicule, because God's bigger. Well, there's another main person mentioned in this text, which I haven't said a whole lot about. It's the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is mentioned here. First time he shows up in the book of Matthew. First time in the New Testament. And of course, he's always been around Ever since Genesis chapter 1, you can see the Spirit mentioned there, hovering over the waters. He's there right at creation. He's always been there, always has. He's eternal, just like God the Father and God the Son. But while Jesus takes center stage, it's very easy for us to forget the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is alive, he's active. He has a very big part to play here. So just think about the role of the Holy Spirit through history. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is revealed right there in Genesis 1 as the one true God. He's the one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then then you come all the way through the Old Testament, you come to the four Gospels here, and we find Jesus is the central figure. The second person of the Trinity is the central figure. But when the earthly ministry of Jesus was accomplished through the cross and the resurrection, God the Holy Spirit now took over that primary role in history. We enter into the church age. 
right? The activity of the Spirit is clear in the very next book, the fifth book in the New Testament. Some call it the Acts of the Apostles. I prefer to call it the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's my preferred title. And then you come into the, the rest of your New Testament, you see the, the Holy Spirit carrying on the ministry of Jesus through, through Christ's disciples and, and the church. Hopefully you, you, you can see all this coming into play, starting with the conception and the birth of Jesus Christ. And today we, we live in a wonderful time period. We may not have Jesus' human body here with us. Don't mourn that. Jesus says there was better things yet to come. <laughs> My friends, Jesus said He would send the Comforter. Remember He said that in John? The Comforter is the Holy Spirit. That third person of the Trinity in the Bible says, this Holy Spirit who conceives Jesus in the womb of Mary is the one who now comes and lives with inside all believers. That is good news. That is that is something to rejoice in. And so now there is really peace. There really is this good news. There is glory to God in the highest, as the angel said. Because, my friends, if you are a Christian, you have the Trinity residing within you. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. It's still not around. All there is is just the, the wailing wall that's pretty much in the, in the Temple Mount. That's all that's left of that. And the good news is, friends, one day when you get to heaven, if you're a Christian, you spend eternity with King Jesus, this Messiah. The Bible says there's no need of a temple in heaven. Jesus becomes your all-consuming passion and temple and worship. So my friends, this Jesus who was born some 2,000 years ago is not just a baby. Oh no, he's unique. The Son of God, the God-man, the one who came to bear your sin in your place. He accomplished that purpose. Remember when he died on the cross? What did he say? It is finished. And the Bible says he gave up his spirit. He dies, but He rose again. He conquered death. He conquered your sin. He conquered Satan. He did for us which we, that which we could never do for ourselves. So this, my friends, is the good news. This is why the angels are, are saying glory to God in the highest. This is why they're talking about this peace among men. Joy to the world is because of Jesus. So please don't lose sight of Jesus in the midst of all this. We have a glorious God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all active here, all alive, one God in three persons, all ministering for us, doing for us that which we could never do for ourselves. Truly good news. May we believe it. May we rejoice in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. We're thankful that he is Jehovah.
is salvation. He's the anointed one of the Old Testament, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the one that was promised, the one who fulfilled all those Old Testament covenants and promises. But we know there's still some covenants and promises yet to come. We're thankful that you're not done. There's a second coming. There's a glorious future that we get to look forward to if if we are believers. And so I pray for anybody who doesn't know this Jesus, and whom, whom Jesus does not know, may they understand the seriousness of their condition. If we die in our sin, we are eternally condemned. Father, open their eyes that they would understand their sin. They would see their need for a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior, the only one who can deal with their greatest problem. Those of us who are believers, may we continually believe in Jesus, who He is, what He's accomplished, and He continues to do. We believe He arose. We believe He ascended. He is alive. He is in heaven, and He ministers as our great high priest. We still believe He is the God-man. Two persons, sorry, one person, two natures. Thank you for this glorious story. (laughs) I don't think we could have written this. How could we possibly have imagined this good news? Thank you for doing for us that which we could never do for ourselves. May we understand it and believe it and live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.